Hello and welcome to God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer to see if we can find any parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories. For those of you that are waiting for season three, don't worry, our special TV series is on its way. We'll be covering everything from Doctor Who to Handmaid's Tale. And as soon as Phil gets back from the States, we're going to get right on that. But we've got a little something for you extra for while you wait. A few weeks back, I dropped in on the RE podcast and spoke to Louisa Jane Smith about Messiah figures in film. You'll hear me talk about some content that might be a topic for a future episode, as well as some things we've already covered. Louisa was an absolute joy to speak to, and if you want a comprehensive but easy to understand guide through a lot of RE-related issues, I can't think of anything better than to download the RE podcast. In the meantime, guys, I hope you enjoy this little one. Welcome to the RE Podcast, the first dedicated RE podcast for students and teachers. Season 3, Episode 9, the one about God in film. My name is Louisa Jane Smith and this is the RE Podcast, the podcast for those of you who think RE is boring, which it is, and I'll prove it to you. I'm so excited to be joined by Giles Goff. Giles co-presents the God in Film podcast with his friend Phil, which is basically two of my favourite things in one, RE and films. So I'm so glad he's agreed to come on the RE podcast. So welcome, Giles. Hi, Eloise. It's so glad to be on this today. I'm so looking forward to this. Now, we've had a few phone calls that tend to go on longer than we planned because we just sit and chat about films the whole time. And and so it's been really lovely to chat with you and, and for you to come on. But before people that don't know you, who is Giles Goff? Hi, my name is Giles Goff, and I'm the host and creator of the God in Film podcast. I'm the media coordinator for Life Church Manchester, and I'm a freelance writer for Media Magazine and other publications. I taught English for about 10 years. I don't think I'd really describe myself as an ex-teacher because I don't think teaching ever truly leaves you. I think you kind of end up being stuck with it on some level or other. I just get to do it a bit outside the classroom these days. Well, you've given a little bit of a hint to my next question, which is what are your personal religious beliefs? So I know that Phil is an atheist, but how would you describe yourself? Yeah, Phil is my token atheist. I would describe myself as a thoroughly flawed follower of Jesus, which, if I'm honest, all the real followers of Jesus would probably be thoroughly flawed as well. They're just too shy to admit it, you know? I became a Christian at 14 and I'm still one. Good Lord, 24 years later, I've gone to a Catholic church, I've gone to a Pentecostal church and a Baptist church. So I don't really identify with a specific denomination. I just tend to think of myself as a Christian, really. And I think actually non-followers of Jesus often feel very flawed as well. So I think we have definitely have that in common. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about the God in Film podcast. How and why did it start? Well, I've loved listening to podcasts for years now. I think my wife and I bonded over the serial podcast when it came out. So when lockdown happened last year, I, like all middle-class white guys, thought, I know, I'll start a podcast because sometimes you've got to just steer into the cliche, you know? I love listening to film podcasts. I love listening to Kermode and Mayo and Empire and the rest of it. And there's no shortage of podcasts about films, but I couldn't find anything that looked at cinema through the lens of faith, or at least I couldn't find any that were fun to listen to. So I called my mate Phil, who I make films with, and he was massively on board. And we formed the God in Film podcast where a Christian and atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer to see if we can find any parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories. 
you'll often find some things you listen to where it's two Christians talking to each other that they tend to devolve into Christianese very quickly. You know, they talk about when you were saved and I had a word from the Lord and prophesied this and we feel anointed to do that. And it really kind of leaves everybody else feeling quite cold, you know? So this is quite why I like doing a podcast with an atheist because I get to describe some terms to someone who's an absolute beginner in this area. And Phil, he does the Phil's facts bit where he actually just looks at the film, goes into all the details, and I go, oh, that's really interesting. That's fantastic. And then we do the finding the faith in the film section where I go, now, this bit here, this reminded me a little bit of this Bible story, you know? So what I tend to find was that a lot of the time, people in church culture really, I don't know if you've ever found this, they really struggle to engage with anything in pop culture. You know, that sometimes there's no way to make a connection there. And my non-Christian friends tend to see church as a bit stuffy or lacking relevance. So in simple terms, the aim of the podcast was to just inspire conversations, to get people talking about the stuff that's important in life through the lens of mainstream cinema, obviously. Because, I mean, what else would you possibly go for? And I have to say, I absolutely love it. I love listening to it. It's one of my favorite podcasts. And I think anyone who's interested in film, anyone who's interested in religion, regardless of whether you're religious or not, are going to absolutely love this. I learned some great facts, mm -hmm. um, including that Steven Spielberg owns the rights to Martin Luther King's speeches. Yes. Yes. That's a mental one. Because when Ava DuVernay did Selma... Yes. They couldn't use any of the original speeches. They couldn't use any of the speeches. Yeah. So then you have this weird game where you have to write speeches for Martin Luther King where it sounds a bit like Martin Luther King, but not quite Martin Luther King. I don't know how they did that, but it was absolutely fantastic. Amazing. Now, one of the themes that comes through a few of your podcasts is the concept of Messiah. Now, the word Messiah means one who comes to save, and the Jews are waiting for a Messiah, and Christians believe that Jesus was this Messiah. And through his death, we could be forgiven and saved from the punishment for sin, which is death. Why do you think, Giles, that so many films pick up on this theme of Messiah? Well, as you say, Messiah essentially means a saviour, someone who comes to save, and another word for that would be a hero. You know, we as human beings, we look out there and we see that things are not in the right in the world and we want someone who can come along and fix it. Now, personally, I think there's something about Jesus' story that is so compelling. So you might have to forgive my bias here. So I'm going to apologize in advance because I know there are some other religious figures who've died and were reborn. But personally, I don't think any of them had as much of an impact on Western culture as Jesus of Nazareth and his death and resurrection. So as a Christian, and as someone whose life has been dedicated to telling, receiving, and analyzing stories, I tend to think that a good narrative can echo throughout history. And you can see those echoes reflected in great works of art. And well, frankly, I tend to think it's more fun if they're unintentional. So in our podcast, we tend to focus on films that aren't explicitly Christian. And we aim for ones that as many people have heard of as possible. Because any film student who's had to sort of go through a film degree has had to sort of listen to talks about some of the most painfully obscure films that came out decades ago in a different country that no one's ever heard of. And it's a real slog to get through. I think we have much more fun when you get things that are still in the cultural zeitgeist. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. Well, what I think we should do now is actually look at a film which includes a Messiah-inspired character. So what film would you like to look at, Giles? Okay, so how good are you when it comes to the MCU? Well, I've only just learned what it stands for, which is the Marvel Comics Universe. 
so very close. Oh. You're so nearly there. It's the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Oh, <laughs> so close. <laughs> Only because on your recommendation, I listened to the Empire podcast, other film podcasts are available. And they kept saying MCU, MCU. So I kind of put two and two together. Yeah. So it's the Marvel Cinematic. Yeah, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Brilliant. So the problem that comic books have is that you have a story that you have to keep going and going and going for decades, essentially. And you have to sort of do like soft resets on things. The fascinating thing about the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that for some of these characters, you get like a very fixed endpoint. Like, for example, Iron Man or Captain America, how they're, spoiler alert, Stories come to an end in Avengers Endgame. And it's Captain America that I wanted to focus on. Have you seen the Captain America films? I have, yes. Okay, awesome. So do you know how you find yourself relating to a certain character over just the absolute tiny, minute details? Mm. So in the first Captain America film, Steve Rogers, as he's known then, he's just a normal guy from Brooklyn and he's constantly being rejected from military service. And one of the reasons was... He's asthmatic. Now, I'm asthmatic as well. I've got my inhaler with me here. It's basically like living life on the difficult setting. And I find myself relating to Captain America purely by virtue of the fact that, hey, you're asthmatic. I'm asthmatic too. <laughs> so that's, that's one of the reasons I liked him. I love that. So he's a great character, isn't he? You could imagine there would have been some fear of adapting him when it came to the big screen because probably Captain America is, he's a little bit of a boy scout, isn't he? You know, he always makes the right choices. He's morally quite pure. And for the last 20 years or so, we've really been looking at heroic figures who are more like anti-heroes, mm. you know, Wolverine, Batman, people who are somehow broken or flawed inside, they're working through some childhood trauma or things like that. And that tends to make them fascinating and interesting and we're hooked and we're on board. But Captain America must have been a really terrifying prospect to try and adapt, to try and make him compelling. But we learn in that first film that he doesn't like bullies and he's picked by the Professor Erskine. And the reason he's picked is that they want someone who's not a perfect soldier, but a good man. So I thought that was a fascinating one. He's born into humble beginnings. He's just a normal guy in Brooklyn. But as soon as the super soldier serum starts kicking through his veins, then he ends up fighting evil. He ends up fighting Hydra, which is pretty much a proxy for the Nazis in general and the Red Skull. And I mean, you've seen that film. You remember what the Red Skull looks like, don't you? Yeah. yeah. That's basically evil personified in nice and simple terms. So he ends up fighting evil in this respect. He ends up handpicking his own team, the Howling Commandos, with Dum Dum Dugan and Bucky. And obviously, quite famously, he loses Bucky along the way. And at the end of the film, spoiler alert, he sacrifices his life to ditch the bomber that is going to destroy much of America's eastern seaboard. And he basically sort of flies it into the Arctic. And there's that bit where, do you remember right at the end where he's saying to Peggy, I think I'm going to miss our dance. It's a really sort of tearful moment where Hayley Atwell's Agent Carter's on the radio to him. And I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it now, actually. Yes. So yes, he sacrifices himself only to be resurrected 70 years later. And have you seen anything of Falcon and Winter Soldier? I haven't, but I've just started reading about it. Because I think mm. the point I was going to make is that when we've talked about this before, I've always found that Captain America was kind of too clean cut to be yeah. the Messiah character. Mm. He didn't seem flawed enough. And I think that's probably what's kind of maybe come through a lot more in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Yeah. One, you have 
a black Captain America, mm-hmm. which is sort of racially closer to Jesus' own nationality. And you've got someone that is maybe just a little bit more rough and ready. Yeah. But I haven't seen it. Have you seen it? Yeah, no, I've seen it. I've seen it. I think that's a fascinating way of looking at it. The very concept of the black Captain America had so many issues attached to it that it was really interesting trying to watch them kind of dance around the issue of race in what's essentially a Disney property, which is usually tried to dodge that as much as possible. What was fascinating when it was announced was in the comics, both Bucky Barnes, the Winter Soldier and Falcon have both taken on the mantle of Captain America at different times, you know, and for a while there, the fandom were like, well, which which way is it going to go, you know? So one thing that's interesting about the show is the way they talk about Steve Rogers there. He becomes almost like a bit of a proxy for moral perfection. And he strikes me as being a messiah figure in the same way as Jesus, because if I look through these things, Jesus is this normal guy. He is born in Nazareth, which like Nazareth and Brooklyn, not exactly the same, I will grant you, but certainly not like the lap of luxury, certainly has been a reputation for being a bit scruffier. He doesn't sort of begin his ministry straight away. It's not like he's born with particular superpowers or anything like that. He begins it after a certain point. And then the way Jesus fights evil is obviously distinctly less violent than the way Captain America fights evil, you know? But nonetheless, he still gets to handpick one of his own team. He loses his disciples. He sacrifices himself for humanity. And he comes back. Now, I'm not saying the creators of Captain America or Marcus and McFeely, who wrote the script for this, were necessarily conscious of those parallels when they wrote the script. But I think Jesus' story is so ingrained into our public conscience that you can't avoid these things when you're talking about heroes a lot of the time, that they end up coming up time and again, whether you mean it or not. It's almost like it's in our DNA, isn't it? I mean, this story's been around for 2,000 years Mm -hmm. of good versus evil and someone coming along to sacrifice their lives to save everybody. It's been around for so long, it's almost part of our DNA. And so that actually anybody that's creating a narrative or a story or a film that is good versus evil almost automatically grasps hold of this Messiah person. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing I would like to ask you is just, In my head, I'm thinking the sort of the moment that he's given the serum is almost like the baptism moment, isn't it? When John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, that that sort of unlocks Jesus's real mission and gives him the sort of starting point. You know what? That is a really good idea that hadn't occurred to me. I'm going to steal that for when we (laughs) have my own podcast when we do Captain America. And then I'm just going to pass it off as my idea. You cool with that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, do it, do it. But also, I think there is a moment in Falcon and the Winter Soldier where, I mean, it's quite a violent scene. And although you don't see it, you kind of see the shield afterwards sort of dripping in blood. So I think that sort of analogy is is really nice if we think, I mean, there's probably two moments I'm thinking of in Jesus' life. And one is the blood that he shed for us. So that symbol of blood is part of redemption, is part of salvation. But also, I don't know, there are times in Jesus' life where he did get angry. Yeah. You know, where you did turn over tables in the temple and things like that. So, yeah. you know, so I think there are so many parallels we can make between Captain America and Jesus. Yeah. So coming back to a point you made there about the John Walker character in Falcon and Winter Soldier. Spoilers for Falcon and Winter Soldier. If you haven't seen it, by the way. That bit where you see him, he's bashed somebody's face in with the shield and the shield is dripping with blood. And you can see the look of sort of shock and disgust on Sam and Bucky's face is when you see something that is a symbol for everything you believe in, and then you see that being subverted 
and being used to hurt people. That is how I feel, and that's how a lot of Christians feel when you see people being hurt by the church, when you see God's word being misinterpreted or misappropriated to sort of hurt people and oppress people. And it breaks your heart because you're like, that's not what we're about. That's not really us. Please don't focus on that guy. Please focus on Jesus instead because he's the real deal. You know, yeah. does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think there has been times where the church has been on the wrong side of history. Yeah, massively. You know, with women's rights and, you know, black rights and LGBTQ plus. The position of where the earth is in relation to the sun, I think, was one of the most famous ones that they screwed up on, you know? Yeah. The church does change. The church does move. But it moves at a glacial pace. It counts things in terms of millennia rather than days. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's like trying to turn an oil tanker. It takes a long time to do it, you know? My little hope is that my podcast and things like that are just being able to just try to nudge it where you want yeah, yeah. it to be going, you know? One thing I would quite like to encourage our listeners to do is to, as they're watching films, to spot these parallels to this Messiah story. Because I think it's so ingrained, as you said. Mm -hmm. Do you mind, Giles, if I just run through like a few characters that might maybe have a bit of a Messiah feature and you to kind of give your input? Go for it. So the one that I kind of thought of first was Neo in The Matrix. And I think an obvious parallel mm -hmm. is just the anagram of his name. Neo is the one. Yeah. You know, you've got the human race that needs saving and they're waiting for the one in the same way as the Jews are waiting for the Messiah. And Jesus comes and he is the one. He mm -hmm. is the one that people have been waiting for, the Messiah. And in the same way, some people believe in Neo and other people don't in the same way with Jesus. Some people followed him and some people didn't. Yeah, absolutely. See, like, I think Matrix came out in summer of 99 yeah. and very quickly was identified as a Messiah movie for cyberpunks, you know? Yeah. So saying that Neo represents the Messiah, it became old hat so quickly that it became almost a bit of a cliche. What's fascinating is when you look at what the position of the machines are, you know? Mm. So when you're looking at the machines in the first film, they're just plain evil, aren't they? You know, the yeah. machines are just trying to destroy humanity or to keep humanity enslaved. So you would consider that as like a metaphor for sin or the devil or demons or whatever, right? However, when Matrix Reloaded kicks in, we see machines that are more ambiguous in their morality, that seem to be fighting on the side of humanity or mm. doing things to benefit humanity. We find out that the Oracle is a computer program. And it's not until, again, spoiler alert for Matrix Revolutions, that last film. Do you remember when he goes to Machine City and he sees the big floating head comes up at him mm. and they say to him, what do you want? And Neo says, peace. And that's when you realize you've had the machines wrong this entire time. Yeah. They are not just evil. The machines are the Romans. You know, the machines are these beings in their own right. And they don't need to be completely eradicated or destroyed. They just need to find a way to live in peace and coexist with the humans. Mm. That's what I found really fascinating about that. You yeah. Know? And I think this is another podcast we do, which is people that subvert the idea of there being black and white and good and evil, mm -hmm. you know, where sometimes the bad person does the right thing. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking of things like Seven and films like that. What about Superman? For me, he's probably the greatest messiah allegory of all time. Mm. You know, he's sent by his father to earth. He has powers. He has to learn how to control them. He's not accepted by people. He has an identity crisis. He's blamed for things he hasn't done. 
And I think there's even a scene, isn't there, where he, he sort of falls to earth with his arms outstretched at mm-hmm. this very weak moment in his life. Yeah. And I think there's a quote actually in Brian Singer's Superman Returns, which I think yeah. is a bit of an un- underrated yeah. film, that says the son has become the father and the father becomes the son. So we've got this idea of Trinity and the relationship between God the Son and God the Father. Yeah, people try to sort of hit the sort of Superman Messiah form pretty heavy. And if you notice Zack Snyder's Man of Steel is Batman versus Superman and even Zack Snyder's own version of Justice League, he's hitting this idea of Superman as a Messiah Mm. over and over and over again. For me, it doesn't work so well because not only does Superman suffer from the Boy Scout problem that we talked about, But he also suffers from the demigod problem, you know, in the same way that someone like Hercules or someone like that, they are more or less invincible. They are pretty much unstoppable. And yes, at the end, uh, again, I'm spoiling so many films today. We're going to have to put like a warning up or something ahead of time. But obviously at the end of Batman versus Superman, he does get stabbed through the chest. But prior to that point, Mm. he was pretty much invulnerable to all things. The fascinating thing about Jesus for me is that this dude was totally physically normal. Jesus would have stubbed his toe and gone, ow, 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 that kills, you know? We have like canonical evidence that Jesus took naps at times and was grumpy if his nap was disrupted by a storm or anything like that. Uh, so to me, Superman is is great. And but then I think, I, you know, I do think you've got the Clark Kent and you've got the Superman. Mm. So for me, you've got that Jesus was fully God and fully human. With Superman, you've got Superman, you've got Clark Kent, and you've got these two identities in one. Yeah, for me, like obviously, Superman is quite heavily bifurcated into Clark Kent and Superman. And do you remember Kill Bill? Yes. And where it talks about the ending, why Superman is different from other superheroes is that they all put a mask on to become, go out and do superhero stuff whereas to hide their true identity, whereas Superman's true identity is Superman. He has to put a mask on to pretend to be Clark Kent, yes. you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's an argument to be made that Superman, as Clark Kent, he's all-powerful at all times, he could do anything, and there is a reference when Jesus is being tempted by the devil in the wilderness where he says, you could call your angels to come and save you, or you could turn that rocket spread. And Jesus doesn't do it. So, okay, you might have talked me around on this one. There might be, there might be some parallels there. <laughs> he was even pierced in his side at one point. <laughs> you get to watch me reverse my position in real time, you know? I feel very powerful. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we could talk about Aslan. We could talk about Harry Potter. We could talk about T-800 and T-2. I mean, there's just so mm. many that we could go on all night. Before we move on, because there's something else I want to ask you, what I'd like to know is in Lord of the Rings, who do you think is the most Messiah-like character? So do you think it's Aragorn, <sighs> the kingship? Do you think it's Gandalf who disappears and then reappears again in a sort of some kind of white, glorious persona? Do you think it's Frodo himself Oof. who is risking everything to sort of destroy the ring? Oh, you're killing me with this. <laughs> you're absolutely you're absolutely killing me with this. You know, that is a tough one. For me... The problem is, is like you say, there's so many of them that could that could work on that front. You could talk about Frodo for volunteering. That moment when he says, send me, is pretty much how I imagine when at some point before history, when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit realize that there's going to be a problem, that there needs to be a sacrifice. I imagine Jesus was like, hands up, send me. 
straight away before anybody else, you know? Mm. You've then got the resurrection of Gandalf, which is your, your sort of fair, easy, straightforward one. For me, Samwise Gamgee is the one that sticks in, in my head. There's, what's that line, Bible verse, no greater love is, is this that but a man who will lay down his life for his friends, you know? Yes. Samwise is thoroughly and utterly motivated by the fact that he just wants to keep Frodo safe. And that, to me, reflects the personal side of a relationship with Jesus. I was always taught that Jesus didn't die to save the world. I was taught that he died to save me, you know, and that if it had been nobody else, he still would have died to save me. So there's that personal aspect to it, you know? Amazing. One thing, there's going to be people listening that teach RE and would quite like to start using film maybe in their lessons. Mm -hmm. How do you think teachers could use films more effectively to teach about the concept of Messiah? That's a really good question. So I've been thinking about this one. I've taught English and I've taught media and I've noticed, this will not surprise anybody, that students react a lot better to having to study a film that just came out in the last two years or so compared to having to study Macbeth, which came out about 400 years or so ago. And I think what it comes down to is like a cultural capital. So, you know, there's things that make up your identity, make up your personality, isn't there? You know, and there's things that exist in the zeitgeist in the time that you are alive, that you feel passionate about, that you are invested in, whatever it may be. So at the moment, my brain is going straight to Taylor Swift and to Star Trek films. You <laughs> you've got some kind of ownership, you've got some kind of connection to. Students are going to be more invested in that. And they're going to be more passionate about writing about those things and about looking at those things. And you can then use that as a jumping off point to talk about Messiah, to talk about any other concepts that you want to address with it. There's one thing to factor into that, though, and it's that the passage of time is a proper pain. So let's take The Matrix, for example. All right. Matrix is a phenomenal example of a Messiah movie, as we've talked about. Now that came out in 99. I was starting my teacher training in 2007. And I remember that there was a point where you could be like, well, of course, kids, I've seen The Matrix. And you'd kind of get a bit of kudos amongst students because they'd kind of think you're cool. Do you know what I mean? Because that you were familiar with something they were familiar with. But I left classroom teaching in about 2018. And then you would have kids saying, what is The Matrix? I haven't seen it. I mean, first of all, there's clearly some terrible parenting going on there. But if you're not going to show your kids The Matrix, then what, if you, what? honestly, what are you doing? I mean, rule one in parenting is definitely get your kids to watch The Matrix as soon as possible. Thank you. Yeah. I am new to this parenting thing, so that's one of the things I need to make sure happens, you know? Mm. But the problem is, obviously, is that as things get older, they lose their cultural capital for the students you can be teaching. So... I love the Matrix films with my whole heart, but if you weren't even born in the same decade as the first one, it's going to be a struggle to make it relevant because they are so of their time. The black trench coats and the scene and everything, that it's going to be much more of a tougher buy-in. And also I think that the technology that they used and the fighting and the slowing down and the camera angles mm. at the time was revolutionary. But now so many yeah. other films have copied it that it was not going to feel as revolutionary for those people that weren't around when it first came. Absolutely. I'm always thinking, actually, that maybe one thing we need to do is say, right, to our students, 
Find a film that you like or that you've watched that explains Messiah, that has a Messiah character in it. So you might also want to flip that around rather than you imposing your cultural capital on them that you're asking them to sort of tell you. Well, strictly with my teacher hat on, A, that's a brilliant piece of homework. And B, if they all bring it in and then they have to give a presentation on a Messiah in a film that they like, then that certainly kills another lesson, doesn't it? You know, that's one less thing you have to worry about when it comes to planning. As you can tell, I am very, very practical when it comes to my teaching sometimes, you know? Yes. So one thing I also want to ask you is what we have to be careful about. I mean, you've sort of maybe answered that already in terms of choosing films that children are going to be able to relate to. So Mm -hmm. being careful not to go too far back in history. But is there anything else that you think we've got to be careful about when using film in lessons? Yeah, there's two things to think about. And the first thing I wanted to say is the metaphor always breaks down at some point. Sooner or later, the comparison doesn't quite work. All those comparison points I gave you for Captain America, they work well, as I'm saying, they work well for the purpose I'm doing. But then one kid then says, well, what about how he feels about Peggy Carter? Are you saying she's Mary Magdalene? And then you're like, no, that's not where I'm going. So if you can make it clear to your students that the metaphor is always going to break down at some point, sooner or later, it's not going to work. And of course, that's obvious because that's what every single metaphor ever does if you extend it beyond that point where it works. So if you can drill into students the idea that it is not necessarily a one-for-one replacement for each thing, it doesn't always break down and nothing's perfect. Because if it was perfect, then you're just retelling the original story. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So for example, the one I was thinking of was Animal Farm. Animal Farm's obviously a really famous story set on a farm where the animals sort of take over and begin to run the farm They get rid of the humans, but eventually the ones running it start to become more and more corrupt. And it is a very clear allegory for communist Russia and the USSR. I'm trying to think, how would you best describe an allegory? It's a good question. Tell me, Giles. Sorry, that wasn't me being rhetorical. I'm trying to think, you know when a word kind of escapes you? An allegory is like a story or a poem that reveals a hidden meaning. And it's usually a sort of moral or political one, you know? Mm -hmm. And allegories are great, but for Animal Farm, it's only ever going to be that political allegory for communism. Mm. You're never going to be able to realistically apply a post-colonial lens to it or a feminist lens to it or postmodern lens or anything else. It's kind of stuck in that thing. And this is one of the areas that myself and J.R.R. Tolkien have in common. (laughs) I mean, you know, aside from the many other things, you know. (laughs) So Tolkien didn't like allegories. He didn't enjoy them. And especially, I can imagine if you've got people constantly asking you if the ring is a metaphor for nuclear power or something like that, I'd probably get a bit bored of it as well. Yeah. So what Tolkien was interested in, though, was applicability. He has this brilliant quote. I'll read it to you. It says, I cordially dislike allegory in all its manifestations and always have done so since I grew old and wary enough to detect its presence. I much prefer history, true or feigned, with its varied applicability to the thoughts and experience of readers. I think that many confuse applicability with allegory, but the one resides in the freedom of the reader and the other in the purpose domination of the author. So I thought that was fascinating. And I have to say, I find myself agreeing with him because I like having the freedom to be able to look at something and say, oh, well, what if we look at it this way? Or what if we look at it that way? It's much more freeing for a reader, I think. 
And I'm just thinking, actually, just to make it really practical for teachers, that actually if you're setting a homework where they have to look at a film and find the Messiah character, that actually get them to identify the similarities and the differences. Mm. So in what way are they like Jesus? In what way are they like a Messiah? And in what way are they very different? Yeah. Because I think that gets them to differentiate and just to say, well, actually, an allegory isn't a like-for-like mimic. It's not a photocopy. Yeah. It's taken an idea and running with the idea so yeah definitely and i think also if you're able to sort of do a similarities and differences aspect to it then it allows students to be more critical as well Mm. and it stops them from just sort of taking things on completely at face value do you know what i mean yeah absolutely so there was one point i wanted to make because we were talking about aslan for a second there and we were talking about tolkien so you yeah sooner or later you end up talking about c.s lewis did you know the chronicles of narnia isn't actually an allegory No. It's not actually allegorical at all. So one of the things is, according to the author, according to C.S. Lewis himself, Aslan is not an allegorical portrayal of Christ, but rather a suppositional incarnation of Christ himself. So as Lewis put it in one of his letters, he said, the whole Narnian story is about Christ. That is to say, I asked myself, supposing that there really was a world like Narnia, and supposing it had, like our world, gone wrong, And supposing Christ wanted to go into that world and save it as he did ours, what might have happened? The story is my answers. Since Narnia is a world of talking beasts, I thought he would become a talking beast there, as he became a man here. I pictured him becoming a lion there because A, the lion is supposed to be the king of the beasts, and B, Christ is called the Lion of Judah in the Bible. And C, I've been having strange dreams about lions when I was writing the work and the whole series worked out like this. So, in essence, Chronicles of Narnia isn't an allegorical metaphor for Jesus. C.S. Lewis is saying, no, if this world actually existed, then Jesus would have wanted to save that world as well. And this is how he would have showed up as it. So that's what I found absolutely blew my mind when I was researching that. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. But actually, a great lesson to say, not everything is about Jesus. You know, not everything is about God. Not everything is allegorical and not everything is a Messiah story. So I think maybe that's a warning to us if we're using film in the classroom is not to make everything about that. I know when I've spoken to my students about this and I was talking to them about Harry Potter and there was all these sort of year nine students rolling their eyes going, oh, miss, not everything's about Ari. <laughs> you know, so I think we've got to be very measured yeah. in what we do. Otherwise, we can see Jesus in everything. The great thing, though, is that the more you look into it, the more you can find that a comparison to something else. So we found that the Terminator, the T-800, was more like St. Paul. We found that Captain Marvel was more like Moses. We found Mm. that Thor was more like Satan being kicked out of heaven. Messiah movies are important and all the rest of it, but it's such a rich text and there are so many different ways of looking at it. And I find that it keeps me going for hours, you know? Oh, absolutely. Before I let you go, I Mm -hmm. must just ask you, if there's one film that you've mentioned in this episode that you would recommend people watch, which one would it be and why? I'm going to cheat a little bit and I'm going to pick one that I haven't actually mentioned yet. Okay. I'm going to talk about The Five Bloods, or to use its proper title, the five bloods which yes. is on netflix very street giles so, yeah i'm pretty street you know it is what it is um <laughs> what a lot of people have said about you yeah <laughs> um so it's a spike lee film yeah. and it's set partially in the vietnam war and partially in modern day and it's the story of this group of former american gis all black returning to vietnam to recover some treasure 
And as they're going, they're thinking about their commanding officer, who is nicknamed Stormy Norman. He's played by Chadwick Boseman. Mm. And it's one of Chadwick's last performances. And it has to be one of the most authentic representations of sacrifice, of love and forgiveness that you're going to see on film. There's a character in it who is almost like a, a Judas character in that he's responsible for where Norman being killed. That's not a spoiler. That's one of the things you learn right from the start. And you see the way that guilt eats him up inside and it corrodes him and it damages his family relationships. And what he really needs is forgiveness. And then when you see that forgiveness given so freely, so easily, without condition, without reservation... It's amazing because for me, I think that's exactly what Jesus would say. So The Five Bloods on Netflix, check it out. Do you know what? I'm going to, Giles. I didn't watch it and I love Spike Lee and I tend to watch his films and I didn't watch this one because I saw the trailer and I read a review and it wasn't very favourable. Okay. And I don't usually do that. I don't usually read reviews until after I've seen a film, but I had with this one. On your recommendation... I am going to watch this within the next seven days That's and I will report back to you. Awesome source. Like, don't get me wrong, it is not perfect. Sometimes you can tell that Spike wants to be making a documentary and he kind of occasionally forgets that he's making a drama. And it's a little bit Treasure of Sierra Madre. There's a few other things going on there. But there are some films, I think, that are almost practically worth it just for one scene alone. And I think this is one of those films that fit into that category, you know? Brilliant. And any listeners, if you're listening and you think there's been some amazingly big glaring omissions of films, please, please, please tweet at the RE Podcast 1 or Instagram the RE Podcast or you can email me Louisa Jane Smith at the RERepodcast.co.uk. I'll put a link to Giles's podcast, God in Film, so you can check that out and then you can hassle him on Twitter as well. He would love that, God in Film. And any other comments that you have, then please, please, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Giles, thank you so much. No, thank you. This has been an absolute delight. It really has been a brilliant conversation and um, hopefully it's not going to be the last and I would love to come on your podcast once and we have spoken about that. So watch this space. I've got your book for two others lined up. So, you know, just clear your diary. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. My name is Louisa Jane Smith and this has been the RE Podcast, the podcast for those of you who think RE is boring, which it is. We just proved it to you. But thank you so much for listening to us bore the life out of you. 